Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Chapter 5 of The Man Who Staked the Stars by Catherine McLean. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 When he left the office with Pierce, someone stepped out of a corner of the corridor and clutched at his sleeve, speaking rapidly. Bryce brushed the hand off carelessly and walked on. A junkie, he remarked to Pierce. There was a quick flash of motion behind them that sent them whirling to one side. Pierce stood aside with a small needle gun in his palm waiting to see if it would be needed while Bryce finished the downstroke of his hand that sent the knife and the junkie reeling to the rubbery corridor flooring. Shall I report him? Pierce asked, making his needle gun vanish in the same smooth motion it had appeared and indicating a phone sign. No, it doesn't matter. Bryce walked on thoughtfully. Everyone wants to kill me at once. Pierce said, it's easy to sway a miserable man to the point of pinning all his troubles and hate onto one name, like Bryce Carter. I know, said Bryce. He saw that the smiling, dark young man was alert, walking a little ahead of him and glancing quickly left and right as they approached corners and intersections and recessed doorways where a man could wait unseen, doing his job as a bodyguard efficiently and inconspicuously. If it's the man I think it is, Bryce told him, falling into step again after they passed the turn into the tube trains. He's working against a deadline. It's now or never. There won't be any more of this after next month. Pierce answered after a glance at a passing mirror to see if they were followed, and a quick scan of the train platform. Your usual haunts will be booby-trapped. Better stay out of routine. That night... In the space hand's end of the city, they ate the dinner that he usually had with Mona at a nightclub or alone looking for a good pickup in an expensive cocktail lounge. It was in the shipping area around the docks at the opposite end of the city from his usual haunts. The ceiling was low and the glasses shivered and danced with the constant muted thunder of jets that shuddered through the floor from the nearby landing fields. His new assistant and bodyguard was pleasantly deferential, lighting cigarettes for him, listening respectfully to his opinions, drawing him out with questions that showed he understood what he was listening to. Bryce could not remember having had such a good time talking since he left the company of the meteorite miners at the belt. Everything he said seemed right and even brilliant.
As he talked and told anecdotes of his life and sketched some of his plans, he saw his past life with peculiar vividness, as if he were a stranger seeing it for the first time. In the reflected light of the interest and enthusiasm of his audience, events took on a new glow of entertainment and adventure and success, where they had seemed to be just work and risk and routine at the time. They had an evening to pass. Somehow, Pierce got into conversation with a little Egyptian who could have stood for Cyrano and had the same merry, impetuous way about him. Raz Anna was his name. He claimed to be the caliph of Baghdad, still incognito, or perhaps a professional explorer disguised as a native. After a few drinks, he enlisted them, somewhat confusedly, as the two missing musketeers, and they found themselves wandering arm in arm from bar to bar and up and down dark alleys interviewing the heathen natives. Bryce realized that he was laughing steadily and enjoying himself in a way that had nothing to do with the small number of drinks he'd had. He couldn't get any deference out of Raz. Raz wouldn't have deferred to God himself, and it was no use trying to impress him, for nothing impressed him. Apparently, the hook-nosed, merry little man had no ambition and no envy of anyone, and wanted no better of life than he had at the moment. It was a strange new world they led Bryce through. Not the ragged, starving, crowded viciousness of his childhood, not the fighting equality of spacemen and rock miners, many of them wanted by the law, not the simple barren hospitality of the settlers in the belt who owed him money and who invited him to their sparse dinners in gratitude. Those he had always managed to keep in their places and exact a certain measure of respect. Even the smooth, powerful men of wealth around him now accorded him a certain measure of deference that was an acknowledgment of strength. But the two musketeers he was with and the world they opened for him seemed to respect neither distance nor politeness, nor hold any fear for strength. Friendly insults and uncritical friendliness mingled oddly with the mock solemn pretense of the fairy tale. And that part was genuine and spontaneous. It didn't seem to be a different kind of people he was meeting exactly. It was the same kind of people approached differently. He didn't know exactly how it was done. And he let the other two take the lead. Perhaps he had drunk too much, he thought, as he rode the hotel elevator. For, in retrospect... The evening was a haze of pleasure that was hard to pin his attention to. Everything he had said, everything that had happened seemed profoundly right, an atmosphere which he had encountered rarely before and only then in the last stage of drunkenness. But he was sober. He had had only a few drinks, and his perceptions seemed sharpened rather than blurred. Yet, where there should have been critical thoughts and regrets for error and restless plans in his mind, there was only a pleasant empty buzz. Too much talk, he thought, yawning as he went down the luxurious hotel corridor to his room.
It was that night that he first noticed something wrong with the mirror. He glanced into it casually while undressing, then not so casually, walking up to it and inspecting his face. A slight, unpleasant tingle coursed along his nerves. A stranger. When he tried to focus on what was wrong, he could find nothing that looked any different. Yet the total effect was completely wrong. He decided that it must be the mirror, some subtle distortion of the reflection. The old one must have been broken in cleaning and a new one put in. The chill passed, and still the good blank feeling lasted. He went to bed reviewing the evening and smiling, and went to sleep without resorting to the mental arithmetic that he generally used to clear his mind of dissatisfactions. The next morning, the mirror still looked peculiar. There seemed to be nothing wrong with the reflected image of the room, but when he gave himself the usual inspection before stepping out into the corridor, the feeling of strangeness returned, and his eyes felt as if they were blurring. He put his hand up to his eyes instinctively and felt a distinct shock when the mirror image did the same. Odd. A slender, smiling young man joined him in the lobby, rising and falling into step with him as he passed, going through doors before him with the inconspicuous alertness and precaution. He did his duties as a bodyguard well, Bryce noted, but that was only to be expected. Efficiency is, and should be, unnoticeable. One thing he discovered during the working morning at the office. There had been nothing wrong with the mirror in his hotel room. The washroom mirror was worse. He stood for a while, frozen in mid-step, while he looked at a lean, tanned, and freckled face, which looked like a color movie of his. Every feature in its proper place as he remembered it but yet not his. It didn't belong to him. He made faces at it, and it made faces back as if it were his, while he tried to believe that he was looking out of the gray eyes which looked back at him. Then he heard someone coming in and left suddenly and sheepishly. That afternoon, after Pierce got into the swing of the work, he began to be useful, fitting himself into the work routine as though he had always been part of it. Making the right calls and contacts and appointments on the barest hints, handing him the phone intuitively as he needed it, always at the right time with almost telepathic instinct. While checking over the decisions and plans of Kesby and the staff that needed his okay, and signing type letters, Bryce talked the thoughts and plans which came half-formed to mind, almost thinking aloud and when his remarks struck something that sounded like it would be good to do soon, he saw Pierce jotting them down, later detailing the preliminary steps for Bryce's use. And two, all the small tasks were being taken from him with easy naturalness, saving him much time. His assistant was being what he had claimed he would be, a genuinely useful left hand. Bryce found himself proud of the kid's manifest efficiency, for he was a product of the same school that Bryce himself had climbed from. On the way back to the hotel, after work, 
he caught Pierce glancing at him with a thoughtful expression and realized he had been faltering and giving a second glance to every public mirror that he had passed. He was momentarily embarrassed, wondering if any strain had showed on his expression. There was a party he had to go to that night, so he changed to formal clothes and stepped off again for the home of the FN Administrative Governor of the Moon. He did not want to attend. It would be another of those stiff, lonesome dinners he had suffered through before, but he had to learn to make friends on his own social level and be easy and convivial with the kind of people he would be associating with the rest of his life. After the first hour had given him a good test, Bryce decided that the evening was as bad as he had anticipated. He stood on the outskirts of a small group, holding a drink and watching resentfully as a startlingly beautiful woman laughed and talked with the others of the group, and not with him. She had been introduced to him as Sheila Wesley. The jokes she had with the others were quick and subtle flashes of wit and insight, and seemed to be based on a mutual understanding that he could not share, even though some of the others had just been introduced and had been strangers to each other a few minutes back. It was something he grasped vaguely as a common background and approach to life that they shared, perhaps through education. There were quick references to political situations they all seemed familiar with, or a name that could have been some character in a book they might have all have read or could have been somebody in history. Each reference followed by a subdued laugh and an added witty statement from some other quarter. No one of them gave a word to him or noticed that he was there. Why should they? He was dressed well and expensively, but so were they all. He was a person of prominence and power, but so were they all, and bored by it. He could not talk like the others. Then what could he do to make Sheila Wesley smile at him the way she smiled down at the ridiculous little fat man beside her as he excitably stuttered out his opinions? Sheila Wesley was not like Mona, to be captured by money and clothes and influence. Would she be impressed even by the power he would have later? He tried to picture her as tremulous and odd, hanging on his words and flattering him, but he couldn't believe it. She probably wouldn't notice him any more than now. There was nothing he could do to impress her. He had thought Mona had poise, but now he saw that her manner was just an inadequate carbon copy of a completely spontaneous original. The woman, Sheila, managed to be poised, aloof, and yet friendly to everyone simultaneously warm and unattainable. He desired to be bitingly rude. That, at least, would make her admit that he existed. She was smiling at that ridiculous little fat man again. He drained his glass and, completely unnoticed, left the party. Nobody would miss him, he was sure. Outside in the corridor, Roy Pierce, his assistant, was engaged in conversation with two young men and two girls. There he is now, he heard Pierce say. And one of the men came toward him laughing. 
Is it true that this lunatic can't go and make up with the lady of his heart because she has had him banned? If we all try to smuggle him in... And one of the girls, a really gorgeous blonde, called. He was just telling us about that time you were in space with the pirates after you, and they had stolen the big focusing mirror from the first belt foundry furnace. I'm sure you could tell it better. You tell it. He was surrounded by the five then. Go ahead, they were urging, laughing. Go ahead. It didn't really happen, did it? This accusation was made by the pretty blonde. He looked at her half indignantly. I don't know how he tells it, but it happened. And he began to tell what had happened. The two girls and the two young men listened, adding occasional startled interjections and admiring laughter. Pierce inserted an occasional question, and Bryce became aware that in answering them, he was guided to stress and amplify points that made clear the danger and comedy. Later, he became aware that he was half-consciously following the clues of Pierce's expression for the right stress and mood of the telling. Now offhand and smiling and telling what he had done, now heavily dramatic, mimicking and burlesquing the tones and threats of the outlaws, now ironic, and bitterly indifferent to passing over damage and deaths. As a wryly lifted eyebrow in the dark young face listening, and a faint, imperceptible shrug made him see what had happened from a different angle than he had seen it then. Pierce apparently had something he needed, a good story sense. Following him must be something he had learned unconsciously last night, but it worked. He could see how well it worked in the expressions of his audience. Someone leaving the party had stopped to listen, standing behind his right shoulder. When he finished, amid the exclamations and sighs of his listeners, a cool, familiar voice drawled. That's quite a story. I picked up something about that at the new foundry on Reef 5, but it was already an old yarn then. She stood before him, still smooth and poised and lovely, offering her hand. I'm glad to hear it from the horse's mouth. Aren't you Bryce Carter? We were introduced in there, I think, but the name didn't click. It was Sheila Wesley. That evening was something to remember. First, they were a private party at a nightclub, then at a small restaurant. Tom, Betty, who was the pretty blonde, Ralph and the pretty brunette whose name was Marcia, Pierce, himself, and Sheila. The talk ranged wildly over a multitude of subjects, breaking sometimes into collective fantasies of nonsense like a hat full of fireworks that left them laughing helplessly, sometimes shifting to philosophy and mutual confidences. Every so often, Pierce brought the subject around to something that struck home to Bryce, and he found himself holding forth with unexpected passion and eloquence and he was surprised to see that the others were keenly interested. Pierce rarely said more than an occasional cheerful remark, but in the more subtle plays of conversation, Bryce found himself still half-consciously consulting the cues of his expression to find what his own reaction should be, to find the right word 
and the right attitude that pleased the table and urged them all on to greater and more fantastic heights of talk. It was obvious that Pierce never had any difficulty understanding anyone. He had an instinct that Bryce lacked, and Bryce willingly surrendered to superior skill and followed his silent lead. Sheila, he discovered, besides being a member of one of the top diplomatic families, had worked for a short while as a consultant at the Belt Plastic Manufactory when it was being set up and had taken to space life. She shared his enthusiasm about the future of the asteroid belts. It was an unprecedented evening. At the close of it, he had four new friends and had discovered that Tom was Tom Mayernick, one of the attorneys of the Spaceways Commission and one of the men whom he had gone to the dinner to meet. And Sheila, tall and slender and beautiful, pressed his hand as the group parted and said in her wonderful voice, I want to see you again, Bryce, she smiled. I eat at the technician's end of town, you know. I'll be with a group at Geiger's counter tomorrow, lunch. If you bear the company of slide rule artists, we'd be glad to see you any time. He stood for a moment, oddly surprised. Say thank you to the lady, Pierce smiled, and to Sheila. You shouldn't startle people like that, ma'am. His heart's weak. I just dropped dead, Bryce said, finding words. You aren't leading me on. You'll be there. On my honor, she smiled. Good night, Bryce. She was used to such tributes. Half mocking as they were, she knew how much they were basically sincere and accepted their tribute to her beauty as a matter of course. What a wife to have, and introduce as his wife to other men, and see the look in their eyes. He remembered suddenly that he had not once mentioned that he was a director of UT. Somehow, the conversation had never been led to a subject where he could have said it. He made a mental note to tell her next time. It seemed strange that he had been with five people so many hours without informing them that he was a director of UT. He had done the same thing last night, now he remembered. But they had seemed to like him without it. He let himself into his hotel room and turned on the light. But the first sidewise glimpse of himself in the mirror was disturbing. He solved that problem by the remarkably simple expedient of turning the light out again and undressed in the dark, grinning foolishly. End of chapter 5 Read by Paul Hampton